We're going to do here what we always do. We're going to open our Bibles. Please pull out your Bible with me. We're continuing in Romans. We'll be in two places today, Romans chapter 2, and then eventually we're going to turn to Genesis 17. So I'll, I'll give you a heads up about that. Here's, a, here's the deal. I've been praying all week for asking the Lord to give me a really simple summary statement of the text we're about to study. Something like a concise headline for what we're going to discover is a very complex four or five verses. Complex and rather odd, I will warn you. And so I prayed, Lord, I just need something simple, something that people can really get. And I think the Lord gave it to me, okay? You tell me later. Don't, don't tell me later. But here's, here's the headline, and I want you to think about this with me this morning. It goes like this. God's goal for the gospel in your life is not to make you more religious. His goal is to fix your heart. Okay? And those are not the same thing. Religion and a healed heart are not always the same thing. In fact, a lot of times, God is completely disinterested with religion, right? That's not really actually his agenda. And, you know, we humans, we can create religions around just about anything, right? Can't we? I mean, we can make a religion for whatever we want to worship. We can create a religion around any idea, any person, any worldview. We can make a religion around astrology, we can make a religion around yoga, we can make a religion around crystals, we can make a religion around hot spots, spiritual hot spots. Have you heard about this? There are these energy vortexes, people claim, around the world. My wife ended up at one of these places in Sedona. She went hiking in Sedona, Arizona, and she was like, I wonder if we'll see one of these energy vortexes. What would that look like? And she found one when she came upon a group, a group of people in their tidy whiteies laying on the rocks in a vortex of spiritual energy, right? We can make a religion around anything. Last night, the largest worship gathering in Portland happened when 25,000 people gathered at Providence Park to worship the gods of Major League Soccer, the Portland Timbers. Okay, am I right? That's a worship service. Singing, chanting, clapping, cheering, sweating, losing your voice, weeping. What would it be like if people left River West the same way they left Providence Park, where you can't speak because you've been shouting at Jesus for an hour. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? We can worship anything. Here's the problem. The problem is that religion or religious practice is that it can often trick a person into thinking that they don't need the gospel. And that's what Paul was dealing with in chapter two. So I'm going to have you look there now, chapter two. Paul was, in chapter 2, what Paul does is he says, everyone needs the gospel, okay? In chapter 1, I showed you why Gentiles need the gospel, outsiders, the irreligious. And Paul, through logic and rhetoric and powerful argumentation, shows how sin has ravaged our world, and it's created a downward spiral of brokenness 
for which the gospel is the only cure. But then Paul immediately at chapter two says, but don't think just because you're religious or you're part of a religious heritage or you have the identity of the people of Israel that you're free from the wrath of God. You need the gospel just as deeply as the Gentile. You remember in the Roman church, there were, there were two groups. There were Gentile Christians and then there were Jewish Christians and they were in conflict with each other, looking down on one another. That theme's gonna come out more and more as we preach. And at this point in Paul's, in his argument, chapter two, he's now specifically addressing those Jewish Christians who might have been tempted, if they weren't careful, to look down on those Gentiles, even the Gentiles that they were worshiping with, and say, we're kind of off the hook, we're kind of special, we're a part of the heritage of God, the, the Jewish people, And Paul says, you've completely missed it. And last week, Pastor Jeff did a wonderful job of showing us how the people of Israel had completely missed the point of the law. And this morning, what we're going to discover is now Paul is going to turn to a different issue. He's going to say, you completely missed the point of circumcision. Okay, you heard me, all right? (laughs) The whole sermon's about circumcision, all right? I had three weeks off after a tough January, and I come back, and the text I get is the text on circumcision, right? But here we go. Romans 2, look at it, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value. If you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code. That's just another way of saying the law. And circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. No, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, I don't have to convince you that that last verse, 29, look at your Bible, that is by far the most important verse in this text. Probably it's the key verse in chapter two. And specifically, what I want to tell you is that one phrase that I just read, I'm going to have you look at it. The most important phrase in chapter two is this phrase, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. You don't even really have to know that much about Christianity to recognize that seems like a pretty important claim, right? It is a very odd word picture. Graphic. But I want you to just go there with me for a minute. Try to think about what what could Paul possibly be doing here? What What does he mean by this? Paul, I I read you, a circumcised heart? Now, at a cursory level, the meaning is plain. We get it. We read it, we go, I get it. 
God is not interested in exterior religious observance. His primary interest is the condition of my heart. That's what God cares about, right? And that's what he cares about in your life. You know, an interesting exercise, just look at your Bible there, look at 25. One of the things you could do to get the the argument that Paul's doing is you could substitute that word circumcision for examples of things that we do as Christians that are a part of our religious practice. So you could take baptism and put it in there. So think about how you, you would say baptism is totally valuable for you as long as you've actually been buried with Christ and raised with Christ by faith, which is what baptism symbolizes. And we're going to figure out later, circumcision symbolizes something. Baptism is a symbol of something. And baptism is very significant for you if you've actually been buried and raised with Jesus and had your sins washed by his grace, then baptism is a very powerful symbol. But you could go on and say, it would better to be an unbaptized believer than a baptized unbeliever, right? That makes sense. Or you could take the Lord's Supper. Taking communion every Sunday is certainly a value as long as you in your heart are feeding on the transforming grace of Jesus. That's what makes it powerful. Let me tell you something, that cracker is not very nutritious, all right? You're not going to get a lot of like carb power out of that thing. It's powerful if what's happening in your heart is a meal where you feast on the goodness of Jesus. Worship is certainly valuable as long as you're not just singing. Have you ever been in worship and you realize, I'm actually not worshiping, I'm thinking about the timbers right now, or I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch right now, right? And then you realize, I'm just singing. It's not really worship. And I could go on and on and on, right? How about you? Have you ever felt at times that even in your Christian religious practice, I'm just kind of going through the motions right now? I have. It's okay. You're, 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 you're living out your Christian life and you're doing the things you know you should do. You're attending church, you're worshiping, you're giving, you're praying. But you're, suddenly you come to this realization, I feel like I'm just going through the motions. Have you ever felt as though your religious practice has somehow become hollow and you're just doing things, but your heart isn't really there? This can especially be a common experience for those of us who grew up in the church. You can, you can grow up in the church. You can actually be a Christian culturally, spend your whole life in church, not really know what it would be like to not be a churchgoer, and suddenly, even well into your adult life, wake up and realize, I have been going through the motions my entire life. And Paul says, this is what I'm concerned about. This is what I'm worried about. There's a subtle danger to religion. Even Christian religion can subtly, if we're not careful, Christian religious practice can actually inoculate me from my need for the gospel. 
You know what I mean by that word inoculate, okay? I hope you do in the last two years. But it's like where you, you, get, you get just enough of a dead version of the, of the disease to have your body form antibodies so you can fight off the real thing. Did you know that religion can be dead and inoculate you so that when you're actually presented with the truth of the gospel, you don't think you need it? And Paul says, I'm worried about this. I appreciate Tim Keller. He said it this way, a little quote. I think I have this quote on the screen as well. Do we have that quote? Yeah, here we go. It's possible to trust, look at this. It is possible to trust in Christianity rather than Christ. And this can happen in conservative evangelical churches. He goes on. Paul is showing us a condition called dead orthodoxy where the basic doctrines of the Bible are accurately subscribed to, but they don't make any internal difference. There's an intellectual grasp of the gospel, but no internal revolution caused by the gospel. And my religion is the thing that's inoculated me from it. And I think this is so important. And this is why Paul chooses the imagery of a circumcised heart. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to blow past that metaphor as graphic as it is, all right? And because I'm extremely experienced now at talking about delicate and sensitive things. (laughs) We're going to talk about this, all right? So I want you to know something. Paul chose this particular issue for a reason. He chose circumcision for a reason. He could have talked about a lot of things, but he chose this one. There's actually something critical about this. You don't get this, you don't get the heart of Christianity. He's driving towards the word picture of a heart that's been cut. And we don't get this metaphor for two reasons. Number one, we don't know what the Bible means when it says the word heart. We don't know what the Bible means by heart. We kind of know, and some of us think we know, but very few of us know really what the Bible means by that. And the second problem we have is we actually don't know what the Bible means by circumcision, the meaning of circumcision. We, we know biologically or scientifically or medically what circumcision is, but very few of us know why it was a sign in God's word. I grew up in a really wonderful church that had a wonderful River West. It had a wonderful children's ministry, just like River West. Amazing. Um, This church that I grew up in, just like River West, almost all of the adults served in the children's ministry because they valued it so much. Just like River West. See what I did there? Pastor Kathleen, you can thank me later. But anyway, so I grew up in this kind of church, and, but it was a wonderful place and great, great Bible school teachers, but I could never get anyone to give me a straight answer about circumcision. I'd ask them too. I was that annoying kid, all right? I was that kid who would put the, prop the arm under. They would, the teacher would be reading a, a passage where it would say circumcision or uncircumcision. And at that point, teachers, you're like praying to God, please, there's no kids raise their hand right now. And I was that kid. Well, wait a minute. And they would never answer until I got to junior high and I had this amazing, his name was Peter. And we, it was me and a bunch of my buddies. We were like sixth grade. And we were like, we were like, what is circumcision? And he actually told us the whole thing. And we were like, 
You're kidding. <gasps> no way. That's in the Bible? What does that have to do with Jesus? He was like, I have no idea. But anyway, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you. What's it about? We have to answer those two questions. What is the meaning of circumcision and what is a heart? We can't, we can't figure out what a circumcised heart is if we don't break down the pieces. And so leave Romans and go to Genesis 17. We're going to go to the beginning of the covenant where circumcision is given. Genesis 17, starting in verse 4. This is... The covenant that God makes with Abraham. And here's what happened. God says, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, or we say Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. To underline that or notice that. That is critical. To be God, to, he, he says, do you know what I'm going to do, Abraham, from this moment on? I'm going to be God to you. Amazing. And to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you and the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And this is the inauguration of the multiple, the many millennium within the Jewish faith of circumcising their baby boys when they're eight days old. They've been practicing this ever since this moment right here. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And look at this. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision is a sign that God has committed himself to be the God. Remember verse seven, I'll be God to you. Circumcision is the sign of that promise that God would be the God of Abraham and his people. It's a massive and glorious promise. But you, you read it and you say, well, why this particular sign? Like, ah, why, why does it, why couldn't it be a tattoo? or a, kind of, a certain kind of haircut, like a bowl cut. We'd almost take a bowl cut over this, right? You know, imagine that. Like, why this? I mean, ah, it's, it's painful, it's bloody, it's extreme, it's vulnerable. And God says, that's exactly the point. That's the point. In part, did you know that in ancient cultures, the way you made a covenant is you would act out the curse 
breaking the covenant? Did you know this? Today, we just sign paperwork, and then we break that paperwork really easy. Let me tell you this. If we acted out the possible curse of breaking the covenant, we would be a lot more faithful to our covenants, right? They would act it out. So they, like, there's examples in the Old Testament of taking an animal, cutting it in half, walking between the pieces and saying, God, if I break my part of this covenant, may I be like this animal that's been split in half. Interesting. But that's only part of the answer because you still say, but why that part of the body? I get the cutting off part, but why that? And this is where I want to draw your attention to a repeated pattern. You probably saw it. I'm going to take that covenant, I'm going to put it back up, and I've circled a repeated theme. Oh, goodness, that's really small. Do you have your glasses on? Can you see this? Do you notice the repeated theme in this covenant? You're going to be the father of many generations, offspring, offspring, fruitful, offspring, Abraham, you will be the father. You will be the father of many people. Generation after generation after generation, offspring, offspring, I will be your God. That's the focus of the covenant on Abraham's fertility. But did you know that when God made this promise to Abraham, he and Sarah were well past the age of childbearing? Did you know this? Did you know that when God asked Abraham to get circumcised, he was 99 years old? And Sarah was 90. They were way past the age of childbearing. 99. Okay, just to put this into perspective, Abraham had been drawing on Social Security for 34 years before he got circumcised, okay? 99 years old. And God says, I'm making a promise to you, Abraham, and I actually have the power to fulfill it. In fact, the promise that I'm going to make to you, which I will fulfill, this unconditional covenant, I'm going to do all of it. And it's going to require a miracle. And the only thing that I'm asking from you is to believe me. And then do something as a sign that you actually believe in my power to bring about fertility. In a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. And that was the meaning of the sign. From the beginning. Do you know every male in Abraham's house was circumcised? Every single male. It doesn't matter how old they were. Which means that all of the males and all the females at that moment, because they watched what the males went through, everyone in Abraham's household connected the promise of God for offspring to the sign of circumcision and they didn't even know what the sign actually meant until the day when Sarah got pregnant with Isaac. And then the whole community went, I get it. And then faith erupted in their hearts. And the sign was just that. It was just an external symbol of an internal trust 
that God can actually fulfill this promise. Astounding. So then you say, well, how do we get to Romans 2 then? How do we go from a moment where in that moment, the whole people of Abraham believed, they trusted God. What does the Bible say? Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But then somehow we go from there. We fast forward all the way to Romans where the Jewish people are now ritualistically marking themselves externally with no internal faith, no trust that God has the power to fulfill his promises. And what happened was just like all religious rituals over time, they become just that, ritual. Over time, the people of God developed almost a superstitious confidence in their circumcision. Oh, we're circumcised, we're circumcised, we're good. We're not gonna experience the wrath of God. And Paul says, that's completely wrong. That is, that is just an external religious practice with no internal faith. And Paul goes after them. He, his argument, notice, he says, an uncircumcised person who actually obeys God in trust becomes the truly circumcised one. This is amazing. And this is why Paul says it's all about your heart. Do you know what the Bible means when it describes your heart? You've probably heard a teacher or a pastor say something like this. In English, the word heart means the seat of your emotions. It's an emotion thing. But in the Bible, the word heart means the center of your whole being. And that's true. And I've said that many times from this pulpit. And you've probably heard me say it. The problem is, and I realized even this week, even though I know that's true in my head, I've been so indoctrinated by our culture to think the heart, it's all about emotion, feeling, 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 that even when I read the word heart in my Bible, I still miss the point. It's more than just feelings. And then if you started reading all the places in the Bible that talks about the heart, you go, wow, the heart is doing a lot of different things here. For example, Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That's what your heart does. Your heart trusts in things. And not only that, look at the next phrase, your heart understands. The Bible eliminates the 18 inches between this organ and this organ and makes them one and the same. Your heart in Hebrew, is the combining of head and the emotional organ and beating in your chest. It's an understanding thing. It's a trusting thing. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's what hearts do. They desire things. They go after things. And then the mind justifies the going after and the feet do the walking. But make no mistake, it's your heart that goes after stuff. Or do you remember that place in Genesis 6 where Moses tells us that God saw the wickedness of men, that every inclination of his heart was evil? That's what hearts do. They're inclined. Inclining means to face and pursue. It's your volition. It's your choosing faculty. Your heart is what chooses. Your heart is, Jesus said, 
The, what, what comes out of your heart is what your heart treasures. Hearts treasure, hearts choose, hearts understand, hearts trust, hearts are inclined. Yes, hearts feel, but the feeling is often the least important thing your heart does. Now, imagine the fallout if your heart was hardened towards your creator. What would be the implications of that? That control center, that part of your life that chooses and understands and trusts and pursues and loves and treasures, suddenly that part of my life becomes hard and cold without any faith in the living God. Well, then you'd be able to understand why Paul would say, what you really need is not an exterior circumcision. You need the real thing. The one that the Bible was always pointing towards anyway. I don't need an exterior operation. I need an interior operation. I need God by his spirit. You notice that Paul says, circumcision is a matter of the heart and who has the power to do it? The spirit of the living God. And only him, only him. You know, it's amazing when I was studying this week, I, I knew this sort of, but I was never, I never realized Paul doesn't invent this word picture. Circumcision, a heart circumcision. Paul didn't one day go, oh, I've got an amazing idea. This will be really like, this will be graphic. This will get people's attention. This goes all the way back to the old covenant. From the very beginning, God was realizing you missed it. In Leviticus 26, God says, you have uncircumcised hearts, and it grieves me. Oh, you're circumcised, but you have uncircumcised hearts. You're faithless. You don't trust me. And if you repented, then I I I would fulfill my promise. Or how about this, Deuteronomy 30. This is an amazing passage. You should go read this later today. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. That's Deuteronomy. We're not even out of the Torah. We're still in God's Torah. And he's already saying, the law does not have the power to change your heart. I have to actually circumcise your heart. And I'm the only one who can do it. So, so can I point out something? Two things you have to know. Circumcision is not external. It's internal and only God can do it. Only God can do this. And look what he says. He says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. And look at this. So that you will love the Lord your God. And then later in verse eight, he says, and then you'll again obey the voice of the Lord. This is what, this is what Moses is doing. He's saying, the, the reason why I need a circumcised heart is that if, I, if my heart's not circumcised, I won't love God and I won't obey God. There's different ways to, to try to obey God. There's duty and drudgery, right? And you'll never get very far. When, you just, when you're doing something out of obligation, 
But God says, but what if you added love to that, like an actual tender heart? I thought about this this week. You know, when I was falling in love with Kathy McMurray, Kathy Williams at that time, um, I, I, was, I loved her so much. I noticed that I began to change things about my life that other people had pointed out and it would just agitate me. And I would actually go like, I don't want to change that because you're the one who pointed it out, you know, little window into my heart, right? So for example, like I, I was kind of traditionally late. I'd say, I'll be there at four and I'd show up at 4.30, right? That was how I'd do it. And then I realized, Kathy doesn't like that. I don't know why. She's finicky about stuff. But I mean, so I was like, I was like, I want to change. You know, Kathy would literally, if, if I was like, um, I was like, when you need me home, babe, she would say seven if she wanted me home at 6.30. Okay. <laughs> she figured it out, right? And I was like, this is, this is harming her. And I love her. And so... I want to change it. Am I getting better at it, Kathy? She's in the room. She might not like this illustration. She's like, you're still kind of bad at it. <laughs> but I mean, I, but do you see what I'm saying? There's two ways to obey. There's the drudgery and then there's the, actually, I love God. I actually love God. I'm praying, not because I know I should pray. I'm actually praying because God's with me in this moment. He's personal. He's real. He's good. He's kind to me. Are you telling me that God invites me to spend time with the creator of the universe in prayer? I want to do that. How about this? Ezekiel 36, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Ezekiel 36. This is about the circumcision of the heart. This is new covenant language. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Does this sound like Romans 2, 29? I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Why am I showing you this verse? This is what Paul's talking about. Friends, can I tell you something? When I talk about a circumcised heart, all we're talking about is salvation. Being born again. Regeneration. Where God in his grace finally shows up and he does surgery where it's actually needed. And he cuts. And I feel that heart of stone being taken away and replaced with a beating heart of flesh that loves God. Can I tell you something? You don't have to get baptized to be saved. You should get baptized as a symbol of what God's done, but you don't have to get baptized to be saved. You don't have to attend church regularly to be saved. You should attend church regularly, okay? But you don't have to. You don't have to take communion to be saved. You should take communion. But did you know something? You do have to be circumcised to be saved. 
Now, don't tweet that out of context, please, because that's like heresy 101, okay? You have to be circumcised with the real circumcision of God by his Holy Spirit in your heart to cut away that heart of stone. And I just wonder today, has it happened to you? Has it happened to you? It's not always an emotional thing. Sometimes it is. I've heard stories of people, they'll come up and they'll say, I sat in church for 20 years and suddenly I realized I'm not a Christian. I actually do not believe in Jesus or love Jesus and something happened today and God cut my heart. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it is happens in an instant. C.S. Lewis, you know how C.S. Lewis got saved? He was on his way to the zoo riding in the, in the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle. And he writes in Surprised by Joy, his memoir, he says, when we left for the zoo, I did not believe that Jesus was the son of God. And when I got to the zoo, I did believe he was the son of God. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> okay? You might not feel emotion, but you absolutely have to have a heart transplant. And the only one who can do it is the living God. So I'm going to ask you three questions this morning. I want you to think about this as we get ready to take communion. How about you? Is your heart cold towards God right now? Just be honest. It's okay. Even if you've been a part of this church for 30 years, is your heart cold? Is your heart stony and hard? Is religion lifeless to you? Have you been going through the motions? Is obedience to God drudgery? Can I tell you something? I'm so glad you're here. Because God has a plan for your life today. He is going to do surgery on your heart. You are not here on accident. God loves you so much. Can I pray about that right now? Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, as the worship team comes and we think about this text, we know that you are real. And we know God that we need this truth. Even those of us who have been born again, who have experienced the joy, the blessing of a beating heart for Jesus, we say thank you. May we feel it again today. Like David, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. But I do pray this morning for any, any who have come today realizing I'm cold in the most important place in my life. I'm cold towards God. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you have your way today? If that's you and you're feeling the move of the Spirit of God in your heart, can I just give you a way to pray? over the next few moments as we sing and get ready to take communion. It's so simple. 
you just begin to pray, Lord, I trust you. Like Abraham trusted you that you could do the greatest miracle of all. I trust you. I trust you. Like David trusted you in the face of overwhelming odds constantly against him, I trust you. I trust you like those first disciples trusted you when they looked at the face of their king as he bled from his brow and his hands were nailed to a cross. And they said, I'm not seeing the defeat of my Lord. I'm seeing his victory. I'm seeing his exaltation. And I trust you that he will rise again. And just say that today to God. I trust you, God. I believe in Jesus. And I want to spend the rest of my life following him. And if you prayed that prayer today, I want to welcome you to the family of Jesus. And you're very welcome here. So we love you, Lord. We we love you so much. And we pray these things together. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.